everybody. Okay, good afternoon everyone and welcome to Adelaide Writers Week. Uh, my name is Joe Dyer, I'm the director of Writers Week for six more days. Thank you. And it's been an honour and a privilege to be the director here. Um, it's also an honour and a privilege to be sitting here with not one, but two former Prime Ministers, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to acknowledge that we gather here today on the unceded land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. And as we pay our respects to elders, past and present, for their custodianship of country, we note that there is unfinished business between white Australia and Australia's First Nations, business that must become an urgent priority for the next parliament, namely a referendum on the voice to parliament as embodied within the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And we... Uh, we might come to that in a minute, Malcolm, uh, to have a bit of a chat about that too. Um, but I must advise before we begin that our event is taking place under a COVID management plan, which was very carefully and exhaustingly negotiated with SA Health, uh, that contains strict rules of behaviour, including the requirement to socially distance from people outside your own group and a recommendation to wear masks. So please observe these requirements and act responsibly. Um, we've already had a few pre-event COVID casualties that have meant some of our guests are now Zooming in instead of appearing in person and some can't come at all. And we want to minimise the risk to everyone here in the gardens. Breaches may see us shut down, which would be catastrophic. And finally, please note that both Kevin and Malcolm will be signing their books after this session. Uh, Kevin's The Case for Courage, um, which is part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series, um, with which we are also collaborating on our own series. And some of you may have bought Malcolm's The Bigger Picture last year, but it's now out in paperback with a new foreword. So if you didn't buy it then, get into it this year. So thanks to both of you for coming here to Writers Week. We're going to try and cover a bit, which means my job will mostly be to stop you from waxing too lyrically, I think. <laughs> That's always a Malcolm problem, not yeah. a me problem. <laughs> so we have about 45 minutes before it's your turn, audience. Um, so I'm going to try and cover integrity of our system of government and democracy, <laughs> Murdoch and the concentration of Australia's media, the debacle that has been our climate policy since Tony Abbott, and what the hell is going on with our relationship with China, and then leave you some time for personal reflections on failure and regret. So... <laughs> Oh, you can you. cut out the last bit. <laughs> so we've got a sort of speed dating I, I, I've on I've always quiches. believed confession is a private sacrament. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've both emerged as trenchant criticisms of the current government, uh, both for its lack of moral courage, honour and integrity, and the poor job it does of actually governing. There have been an array of allegations about the personal integrity of ministers, for which there have been no long-term consequences. Um, Barnaby Joyce, Susan Lay, flying to the Gold Coast, Bridget McKenzie, Stuart Robert, where does one start with Angus Taylor? <laughs> and we've also had serious allegations of inappropriate and or illegal conduct made against male ministers uh, in relation to their treatment of women and members of parliament, often female staff and cover-ups in relation to harassment and rape. 
Malcolm, how is it that those who, as Kate Jenkins notes in one of her two recent important reports, those who are supposed to set the standard, get away with such poor behaviour? What is going on and does the rot start at the top? Well, it, it absolutely starts at the top. I mean, the, the leader sets the standard. Uh, the ministerial standards uh, are actually signed off by the Prime Minister. Now, they, you know, they, they don't change a lot from one government to another because obviously it's, a lot of it's pretty self-evident. But the, it's the Prime Minister that has to hold ministers to account. Now, you mentioned a number of ministers there, uh, Joyce, uh, Susan Lee and Stuart Robert, they all left my ministry. I mean, one of the, I thought, one of the keenest questions Lee Sales has asked of a minister was when she said to Josh Frydenberg a while back, tell me, Treasurer, what exactly do you have to do to get sacked in the Morrison government? <laughs> and Josh, Josh, ever helpful, I thought for one breathless moment was actually going to suggest something. Heavens <laughs> knows what it would have been. Uh, but the reality is I think there has been a real deterioration. I think there is a sense of invulnerability and unaccountability. I think that is in large part because uh, Morrison feels that he has, you know, in his leadership group, feel that they have the backing of the Murdoch media, and that is a big chunk of the media, and they feel that they are actually not accountable. Uh, it is, I, I, you know, I, look, I tell you, there, there are two things every government has to do. I see if Kevin agrees with this. I'm sure he does. You know, it's, it's, good, it's good to have vision and be ambitious and be a reformer. It's great if you're smart. Uh, that helps. Uh, but you know what? The, ba the, the meat and potatoes, the basics, are competence and integrity. Right? That's the basic. And... Scott has shown himself to be lacking in both of them. I agree. <laughs> I guess the question then becomes, is it surprising if the people display poor character and judgment? Um, uh, are, is it surprising that they're going to be fast and loose in their professional conduct as well? Kevin, you argue in your memoir that we are now witnessing a new generation of political operators on both sides of politics, hmm. for whom the world of ideas means nothing and for whom politics is little more than a game without ever actually asking about the underlying policy purpose of it all. Is this a key part of the problem, sort of immaturity, immaturity and superficiality? I think it's a large part of the, uh, the problem. I, I agree with Malcolm on the essential ingredients, however, of integrity and competence and the importance uh, of leadership setting the tone and the standards uh, at the top. The other thing is that once you let that slip at the top, you'll be surprised at how quickly it can unravel. Correct. Really quickly, really very quickly. And then secondly, the fact that you no longer have an effective fourth estate, particularly with 70% of the print media being controlled by Murdoch, operating as a protection racket, not as a media organisation, but as a protection racket for those uh, currently in office. Um, you have, therefore, a double whammy. 
you have this erosion of standards from the top whereby, frankly, everything becomes relative. Mm. There's nothing that's absolute yeah. anymore. And, that's, and that underneath it all, you have uh, not an established media holding each person to account, but, frankly, sweeping it under the rug if they're mm. from one side of politics in particular. And on the associated question you raised, which is the calibre of folk going into the show... I think there is a bit of a challenge on both sides of the house, which is when people look at this, as it were, new set of standards applying from afar, it begins to attract a different clientele into the business of politics. And that, I think, is a problem. You know, I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that ideas matter. They really do matter. And Malcolm and I have had many contests of ideas which he's routinely lost and I've always won. <laughs> Not entirely. <laughs> but the bottom line is, you know, whatever you may think of Malcolm or myself, we are into the business of ideas. His being liberalism, mine being social democracy. What that stand for, how does that animate the, uh, the political process, what therefore should the state be doing in the economy, in society and on climate. That's kind of where you come from. That's why you're in the business of stuff, as opposed to folks who frankly just like the business of being there. Yeah. I mean, I look from Scotty from, Scotty from marketing. Yeah. Scotty from marketing just likes being there. Mm. Well, uh, you do actually say also in your memoir, and I quote, that the Liberal Party has now been taken over by a new generation of marketing men embodied by Scott Morrison, who believe in nothing other than the campaign science of how to obtain and sustain power at any price, and then government as an increasingly corrupt syndicate that serves the interests of the most powerful. Malcolm, do you agree with this analysis of the current Liberal Party? Well, it, uh, that, that Kevin's, I, I won't sort of subscribe to everything that Kevin says there, but I did, I, let me put it in my own ways. I think, what, I think what has happened is Kevin's right to this extent that there are too many, far too many people in politics who are there simply because they want to, you know, get to the top of the greasy pole. And, you know, in my view, power without uh, purpose is pointless. Uh, and that, that is, you know, that, that, that's the fundamental problem, that people just want to be there. Therefore, everything is tactics. Now, Scott Morrison is a classic case of this. He doesn't actually have an agenda. I mean, we haven't actually... The only thing he seems to have been concerned about is religious discrimination. Everything else has been day-to-day -day tactics. Now, the problem with that is that you... You know, you can be, you can be successful and you can actually win a lot of elections, but then at, then at the end of the period, people say, well, what have you actually done? Yeah. You know, what is actually the... What, what have you tried to achieve? What, what have you achieved? And so I think, the, I think the lack of purpose other than just winning and holding power is absolutely a fair point. I think also there is, a, there is just a, a, a cynicism, and this is partly due to the, you know, the media issues, the Murdoch media, the, and, I mean, it's not just Murdoch, but it is, that's the biggest problem, is that people are not held to account. I mean... I'll just give you one little example. So, uh, you know, I gave a speech here in Adelaide about this yesterday, but, you know, the deal, the, the decision to dump the French partnership on submarines and, you know, apparently have nuclear-powered submarines with weapons-grade uranium from the UK or the US actually would mean, if were that to happen, these submarines could not be, would not be built, could not be maintained and could not be operated without the 
constant active supervision of the United States Navy. So they would not, now that's what I've just said to you there is not contentious, that is absolute fact. Now, that raises an issue of sovereignty. Don't we think that military capabilities we pay for should be wholly and solely under Australian leadership? That, you'd think that was self-evident. That has been thrown away. But has there been any debate about it? You know, with great respect to your party, Kevin, uh, you know, we've got a Prime Minister who is not being upfront about what he's doing in undermining Australia's defence, and an opposition that is not prepared to hold him to account, and a media that just goes along cheerleading. So, you know, we've got some very big issues in this country, and that's just one of them, that are genuinely not being held to account. We are not taking our sovereignty seriously because too many people in politics and in the political environment, in the media, do not take Australia seriously. Well, Kevin, on that point then, where, where is the loyal opposition here? Um, I mean, it was Laura Tingle who famously said that the current opposition's three-word slogan is, we're with them. Um, <laughs> how is it that they're not interrogating the government on these fundamental issues? Is it because of where we sit in the electoral cycle at the moment? Um, not exactly. I mean, the bottom line is, because of the age of COVID, you will have seen opposition, state and federal, squeezed out of circulation in the media cycle. Mm, um, so if I was to look at Parliament each day, which frankly I don't, and I'm grateful for that, um, <laughs> the um, level of uh, direct political questioning about the government's current policy agenda is full and complete. But the extent to which that's been replicated in, frankly, news cycles which are dominated by the major news of the pandemic today, how's it affecting South Australia, Queensland, etc. If you were to do a comparison with previous years, to be fair to Albo and the team, the contraction in actual physical space and time for any opposition comment is now down to, you know, a nanobite. That's, that's I think, one point. The second is, and I, I'll agree with uh, part of uh, Malcolm's critique here, because you've got this um, protection racket, I mean, the Murdoch media is not a media organisation, it's a coalition partner of the Liberal Party. That's how it works in practice these days. Um, they are now uh, in cahoots with, um, uh, with Morrison, seeking to turn um, China and the national security agenda uh, into the central defining issue on every aspect of this campaign. And they would like nothing more than to conduct the campaign around, let's call it, the China question. As you've seen through uh, uh, the pig-ignorant pig Dutton, uh, the, my fellow Queenslander. Gen genuinely pig-ignorant. Who will speak up for the pigs, I ask? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The pig-ignorant uh, uh, defence minister. His desire is simply to do one thing between now and Federal Election Day to cause Labor to be seen as, quote, soft on national security. So as to have no debate at all on how we've managed this pandemic, how we'll manage the next crisis, what will be the nature of economic recovery and the strategy for diversifying the future of the Australian economy. That's where we should be having a national conversation. So when you see uh, Malcolm's critique of the Labor Party, as it were, being quieter on these questions. I think they're very mindful that uh, the Murdoch media is there ready with a megaphone every nanosecond sure. to turn that into the dominant agenda of the day, and they've read their Maslow, and they know that uh, 
when people get anxious and they feel insecure, that the political psychology of conservatism comes back uh, to the fore. So there's some political management questions yep. here, given the nature of the Murdoch media. Okay, well, you've called for a royal commission into the concentration of media in this country, focusing mostly on Murdoch, um, but also the implications of Nine's ingestion of Fairfax. Um, what do you think, in perhaps more detail, that you do you think the problems are with Murdoch? Uh, and what do you think a royal commission might achieve or highlight in relation to them? If you look at the whole spectrum of it, Malcolm and I would agree that the a media and a free media and a media which holds the political class to account is essential to the functioning of an effective democracy. Easy to say that, but if it's not functioning, let me tell you, it starts to feel a bit shaky around the edges. So what's wrong with our condition of our national media? Very few Australians are aware of the fact that we have the single most concentrated level of print media ownership in the democratic world. There is no other democracy which has 70% of the print readership controlled by one family and one corporation. You're a one newspaper town here in Adelaide, the advertiser. I come from a one newspaper state, mm. Queensland, which determines the outcome of every federal election. Because there are 30 seats in Queensland. Um, and let me tell you, because of the domination of uh, that uh, media beast, it has a profound impact on the way in which federal political news is filtered into the system in my home state. If you go beyond um, the Murdoch concentration, which is, dominates the tabloids in every capital city except Perth, you then are left with the great progressive alternative now, the Costello media, yeah. uh, good mate yeah. of yours. The, um, and you've got Costello, who's chairman now of nine newspapers, and that's the Sydney Morning Herald, and that's the, uh, the Melbourne Age. Then you're left with the third pillar, which is Auntie. Now, I'm a huge defender of the ABC. You know, long live the ABC. Mm. Now, one part, one part of, the, of the solution for the future lies, in my argument, in entrenching in legislation, the future level of budgetary resourcing for the ABC so that s successive governments can't tamper with it. Mm. Mm. So that that at least is a mainstay for holding the public left and right to account. And the other is to crack the back of the Murdoch monopoly. I'm not, I don't say he should not have a place in Australia, he should but it should not be 70% of the print media ownership. That's monopoly, and monopoly is the enemy of democracy. Do you think um, that the Australian people have a right to find it just a little bit galling, perhaps hypocritical, for you both to have come out as such strong critics of Murdoch now, when in government you seemed willing to follow Tony Blair's position that it's better to be riding a tiger's back than let it rip your throat out and play along with him when he was in power? Well, can I... You answer for your yeah, sins yeah, first, no, I'll no, answer no. second. Well, I've I got mean, some uh, quotes here from David Pemberton. Well, I mean, as, as those, uh, those, who, uh, those who follow social media will have noted, it's the eighth anniversary of my launching as a minister... Uh, for communications, the Saturday paper. So I've certainly supported that yep. little bit of diversity, and uh, and one of and the best reveal, the best single reveal in my book, uh, 
uh, was that um, back in, well, must have been, what, about 2011, 12, Lucy, I think, we uh, actually organised, basically made all the arrangements to bring The Guardian to Australia. So that was... Uh, that was I've, I've done a lot of... Me I've, Lucy and I have done a lot of big media deals in our career. That's, that was... I would say that was the one for which we got paid nothing, but I think it was the best. Thank you, comrade. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> so I've been... But I'd say this, yeah, look, you, you, you know, you have to live with the political realities, right? But um, the, the, the real problem with Murdoch, uh, in my view, and I've got a slightly different perspective to Kevin on this. I agree with him on the concentration, but I also note that that concentration arose from a decision made by a Labor government, the Hawke government, with Paul Keating as treasurer, to allow Murdoch to buy the Herald and Weekly Times back in 87, I think. And it was so a wrong decision. It was absolutely the wrong decision. Totally agree. Um, the real problem is that I... Is, and you see this with in Australia with Sky News in particular. You see this in the Murdoch tabloids. And you really see it with Fox News. Is the way they've gone from being news organisations that generally lent to the right, editorially, not exclusively, but generally lent to the right, to becoming, you know, basically what they now call them in America, non-reality-based news services. <laughs> now, you know, this, that's a term. That is a term. Sounds crazy, but the, this is an organisation. Fox News was the principal media enabler of the January 6th attack on the US Capitol, a coup designed to under, to basically, you know, overthrow the government and the constitutional processes in the most consequential democracy in the world today. Think about it. Uh, you've got Tucker Carlson, the most popular host on Fox News, who has been the most enthusiastic backer of, wait for it, Vladimir Putin, mm. yeah. right? You, and I mean, you know, we, sometimes I think we fail to recognise how consequential this shift has become. Murdoch's, you know, media has gone from being, as I said, media that more often than not lent to the right, which is everyone's entitlement to do so, just as some, you know, outlets lean to the left, but it's actually become now active, active political propaganda. And if you, and if you, uh, you know, I just put this to you. Question. Discuss with your friends. Which person alive today, single person, has done more damage to American democracy than Rupert Murdoch? Nobody. Well, it's a... You know, it's hard to think of an alternative. I mean, you know, we... We, it, we depend... The world depends so much on the maintenance of the rule of law and democracy in the, in the United States. Its biggest threat is not Xi Jinping. It's not even Vladimir Putin who is invading Ukraine. It is the forces of right-wing propaganda that are tearing that country apart, making it more divided and more angry than it has ever been. And that's why, of course, in Australia, we have to be more self-reliant, build more friends, more associations, and recognise that in the long term, the only people on whom we can depend are ourselves. Um, <clears throat> so just to finish up on Murdoch, Kevin, what would you do then in relation to this? So Malcolm's talked about 
introducing more media in for competition, would you favour, you know, enforced divestment? Um, if the Royal Commission was called and handed down recommendations essentially agreeing that they're conflating, you know, editorial with reporting, they are a threat to democracy, what, what do you imagine could be the recommendations for healing? Beyond um, the recommendation which I've run through before, which is legislatively entrenching the Sorry, future the ABC, of the ABC's yep. budget, which I think is fundamental to our future. Look at the hostility institutionally uh, of uh, the Murdoch beast against the ABC for the last decade plus. In the United Kingdom, they've tried to destroy the BBC. This yep. is a global project on the part of uh, the Murdoch beast. So it is not a trivial matter to say, pitch the ABC budget at a good level to sustain a complete breadth of news and information services and the rest of what the ABC does, legislatively entrench it so that no future government will ever be able to get past the Senate hurdle of uh, repealing uh, such a piece of legislation. Mm. It's not a trivial reform. It's a big one. Mm. On the rest of it, on the question of divestment, there's a method in my madness, which is not to articulate a specific alternative model. And the reason for that is as follows. Murdoch wants to shift the agenda, which I think Malcolm, myself and others have helped to generate over the last two years, which is the Murdoch media monopoly and it being a cancer on our democracy. They would like to shift that debate and their defence of that monopoly into one of which is about the evils of one model over another as strangling the democracy. I don't intend to offer Murdoch that advantage by saying here is model A, B and C because he will then run a four-month <laughs> campaign about how A, B and C will strangle democracy as we know it. I say to Murdoch, defend the monopoly you've got. Why should you have 70% of the media in this country and why should you be an unrepentant protection racket for, for institutionalised corruption in this country? Answer that, Mr Murdoch. Okay. So it was the Murdoch media's ideological position and support for politicians like Tony Abbott that enabled climate to become a central part of our insane and incessant culture wars. Malcolm, is this mess all Tony Abbott's fault, entirely down to his and Peter Credlin's cynical decision to describe Gillard's climate policy as, as a carbon tax, as part of their brutal retail politics? which from then on seemed to close the so-called Overton window on a price of carbon in Australia? Well, look, that, that was a part of it, but, I mean, you've got to remember that Julia Gillard did actually describe her emissions trading scheme as a carbon tax, which is the most bizarre thing to do because it wasn't, you know. I mean, just, just to get... For, for what uh, Kevin would call uh, terminological exactitude, being... <laughs> Closely linked to programmatic specificity. Not at all. That's uh, the uh, pro programmatically unspecific, uh, okay, inspecific of you. But, but what I would <laughs> no, what I'd say is that uh, the difference is a carbon tax is when you have a fixed price, you know, eighteen dollars and forty three cents a ton, mm. you know, and that's the, that's the tax. Uh, an emissions trading scheme is when you have a limited number of permits and they get less every year, and you know the market basically determines what those permits cost. And both the, C both the Howard government's emissions trading scheme, which I was you know, responsible for, I suppose, as the environment minister, uh, and uh, you've got to remember that the, the first legislation to enable an emissions trading scheme was passed by, under the Howard government. 
I mean, this is the bizarre thing, that this was a bipartisan issue. Howard wanted an emissions trading scheme. Kevin became Prime Minister. The team that had been, like Martin Parkinson, that had been working on it under Howard went on to work on it under Kevin. Uh, and, you know, I was very anxious. There, there was always this move from the right, and I think it was, it was partly right-wing politics, populist politics, partly the self-interest of the fossil fuel lobby, but the Murdoch media in particular were pushing against this. And so I was hold, trying to hold the coalition to stick to what, in fact, was John Howard's policy. Um, the, uh, the regrettably, and we saw this happen in the US too, by the way, uh, and I think the two movements are linked. We ended up with global warming and attitudes to global warming becoming an identity issue. Now, you know, as Greta Thunberg famously said, you know, it's only... It's, you, saying you... Uh, believe or disbelieve in global warming is about as rational as saying you believe or disbelieve in gravity. I mean, you know, if I, if I fling myself off this stage pronouncing I don't believe in gravity, my, the error of my uh, belief will be demonstrated very quickly when I land on my head in the, on the grass there. So, you know, it's the same thing with global warming. The physics of our planet do not care what any single one of us think about the issue. The forces are inexorable, and we are seeing them all the time. So this was the... So, I look, Abbott, there's no question, Joe, Abbott played a huge part in it. Uh, the Murdoch media played a gigantic part in it. I mean, you know, frankly, don't forget... I don't want to offend anyone here, but don't forget the Greens who voted against the CPRS in the Senate in 2009. I mean, if that... If that, you know, with the Liberals that were still supporting me crossing the floor, Labor, and if the Greens had voted for that, the CPRS would have been passed. Yeah. And you know what? Today, it would be about as controversial uh, as the GST or, you know, the local, you know, council rate levies. I mean, it would be part of the furniture. So there was... A, that's why I fought so hard at the end of 2009, because I could see there was this window closing, and unless we got through it, we were going to end up with years of exactly what we've had, which is complete and utter lunacy. And to be fair to Malcolm, he paid a very high personal political price for doing that. Uh, when he was leader of the opposition, I was prime minister. Um, and we came within an ace of getting mm. it through the Senate. Mm. This was a very tough negotiation. Penny mm. Wong was my Minister for Climate Change. I love Penny. She's a local girl. And mm. uh, she's uh, an enormous asset for this state and the country. But she was negotiating with you and uh, McFarlane and good mm. faith and reaching compromises wherever we could, sure. got it to the Senate, and then we had this crazy coalition of um, right-wing nutjobs from the Liberal Party <laughs> and give me perfection and universal bliss by tomorrow morning uh, from the Green Party, mm. and this actually killed it. Yeah. And we are where we are. Otherwise, we'd be 10 years into a carbon price. Yeah, we sure. would, um, but instead, we're now in a position where both major parties are committed to policies on which there is generally scientific consensus that they don't go far enough to ensure that global temperatures won't increase by more than 1.5 degrees. The Climate Council says, in particular, we need to do more heavy lifting in the next decade if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, and they suggest we need to reduce our emissions by up to 75% by 2030. So as we now have once in 100-year floods and fires every other year, 
Is there anything that we can do to disrupt the madness and return us to evidence-based policy, apart perhaps from electing independents at the next election? No. Well, well to, to be fair... Uh, no, you go, Kevin. That's OK. I'll, as they say in the classics, I will be brief. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I will be. I think uh, Chris Bowen's landing point of 43% uh, is uh, not bad in the political circumstances. It's infinitely better than the alternative, and it will be delivered if we form the next government. But you speak to him and you speak to Albo, they know it's just the beginning of what needs to be done uh, longer term, first point. The second is don't underestimate the power of the renewable energy revolution, which, frankly, we both had something to do with getting going. When we failed on the carbon price back then uh, through that uh, vote in the Senate, what we succeeded with was introducing Australia's mandatory renewable energy target of, it sounded like a revolution at the time, 20% renewable energy of total electricity supply by 2020. When we were elected, it was 4%. Mm. Today, it is 23% and rising. Mm. That worked. Turbocharging what we do with renewables, with or without an effective carbon price, is a big part of the solution. And the final part of where it goes to is... If we don't act with sufficient national political resolve, let me tell you, the court of international political action, particularly in Europe and the United States, will move increasingly towards imposing carbon tariffs on this country's exports mm. and therefore imposing a tax penalty on countries and economies which fail to act sufficiently to produce a sustainable climate outcome. So it's a cocktail of international pressure, further action on uh, the renewables where we've made real progress and uh, doing better over time uh, than uh, the commitments for greenhouse gas uh, reductions by 2030. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, I, I, there's just not that much time before no, 2030, no, no, is there? No, no, OK. Well, there isn't, and I, I, I'll, I will take up very little of it. Look, I agree with what Kevin <laughs> said. Uh, we actually collaborated as, I was brief. Uh, as PM in his part, opposition leader on my part, to get the uh, renewable energy target legislation, uh, it was actually was a, it was it was amended. We but we got it through the Senate. We got bipartisan agreement on that. So that was actually, you know, one of the good achievements that we ma managed to get together, even though we failed uh, with the CPRS. Look, the reality is we can go to zero emission energy right now. I mean, you are, you guys are pretty close to it here in South Australia already, and the you know, the, 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 the mixture, it, it, it's, it's cheaper than burning coal and gas, right? So that wasn't the case when I was, in, I was Environment Minister and Kevin was PM. You know, the technologies have improved. Hmm. So basically we just need engineering and economics to replace ideology and idiocy. Uh, That's you need, all. You need, <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, but you need, you need planning. And so you've got to, as you phase out big coal-fired power stations and you see their closures are being brought forward all the time, you've got to make sure you've got the renewable energy and, above all, the ability to firm that energy uh, in place. Now, this is where, you know, green hydrogen is going to be very important. Batteries are hugely important. You've seen the huge success of the Horndale battery here, but also pump storage. Now, it takes longer to build because it's a lot of civil works and so forth, uh, but, you know, that ability to have big water batteries, which can, you know, hold huge amounts of electricity stored not just for a few hours, but for many hours, even days, 
uh, we need to build more of them. There are thousands of sites available. Uh, obviously, I got Snowy 2.0 underway, but I just say this about Snowy 2.0. It is giant, uh, but it is very sui generis. You know, it's not something you can replicate. What we need a lot more of is essentially turkeys' nest dams built on hills adjacent to existing reservoirs. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward. You have a essentially a closed loop in the middle of the day, pump all, all the water up the hill, and then you run it down at night. You need good planning. We've got a great energy market operator in AEMO. If you look at their integrated uh, system plan that they call their ISP, it's got, it sets out how much storage we need. We know what we need to do. Business knows what it needs to do. Look what Andrew Forrest is doing. Look what Mike Cannon-Brooks is doing. You know, look what Origin is doing. The states and territories know what to do. Look at the progress that Stephen Marshall has made here on renewable energy and his commitments and, you know, Matt Keane in New South Wales and their Labor counterparts around the country. The only player that is missing in energy leadership is the federal government. Yeah. And what I would say, and I never thought I would say this, honestly, is thank heavens for federation. <laughs> because, because if we didn't have the states and territories, we would have no leadership on emissions reduction in this country at a political level. And a footnote on that for one second. Why we need radical political change in Canberra now is, remember, we are still only 1.5% of global emissions. We're not going to save this country from the ravages of climate change in the absence of comprehensive global action. It is in our national interest to be in the forefront of global diplomacy and bringing about ambitious global climate outcomes with the other major emitting countries, including China, the United States, the Europeans, India and Japan. Whereas at present, you go to an international conference and there's the Australian delegation hiding, cowering in the corner uh, under some, you know, local carbon stand. Uh, which is what happened well, in Glasgow. Yeah. Can, I, can, I, can I share a little, a little anecdote? You went to, uh, you went to quick, stir the possum. No, I went, no, I went, I, I went, <laughs> I went stirring to the, the possum. I, I went to the Glasgow... Co no, I, was the, I was the leader of the International <laughs> Hydropower Association delegation, Kevin. And stirring the possum. I, <laughs> possum stirring is part of my character. <laughs> uh, I can't help it. But uh, leaving possums aside, uh, Australia was, you know, the only developed country that didn't increase, formally increase, its 2030 target. That's right. And the Americans, in particular, John Kerry, did they put, you know, begged, pleaded, you know, jumped up and down to try to get Australia to do that. And we didn't. We literally, on, on what they regard as, you know, obviously you, the invasion in the Ukraine and geopolitical rivalry with China are very high issues, but climate is, you know, most people in that administration in Washington say that is the biggest sort of existential issue we're facing. Australia did not show up. That's and right. at, at the Australian stand, you know, these cops are like a giant trade show and all the different countries have got, you know, little stands or pavilions, they call them. It's a grand word for a stand uh, <laughs> at a trade show. But <laughs> at the Australian stand, do you know what was the featured exhibit? It's great. I love this. Santos, thing. a gas company. <laughs> I mean, it was surreal. I, was, I mean, I was thinking, what, what, why not go full throttle, guys? Why not just have a big pile of coal here and tell us what you really think? It was honest, and there was so much objection to it 
that they had to actually move it inside and hide it. But it was a shocker. You've got Just to you've got to ask yourself. We don't. What, what planet? You know. Well, you know what the problem is. They've forgotten that the, the planet they're on, which is the only one we've got, and that we've got to save. Well, we don't really seem to be covering ourselves in glory on the diplomatic front quite generally, um, you know, alienating the Americans through our inaction on climate change by lying to the French. And now, as you alluded to earlier, Kevin, we've decided to weaponise our relationship with China hmm. for base political ends. Um, the relationship with China is though going through a volatile period, even if you put Peter Dutton aside, as mm. the national security agencies have exhorted um, us to do. And contrary to historical experience and I think contemporary expectations, both of you have noted that China um, is now combining um, political authoritarianism with rapid economic and technological progress, whereas previously there had been perhaps an assumption that as the, with the creation of the middle class and some of that 850 million people were brought out of poverty, there would be a drift um, towards democracy, and, and that, that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, what does Xi Jinping's seeming shift from rational pragmatism, as you've called it, to the wolf warrior diplomacy mean for Australia, including their willingness to punish countries economically if they displease Beijing diplomatically or politically? I think um, if either Malcolm and I were in office today, we would find managing the China relationship exceptionally difficult. Yep. Let's just acknowledge the reality. Uh, let's not try and airbrush it into uh, some sort of um, you know, vanilla-type problem. It's not. It's a big problem. Secondly, every democracy in Asia and in Europe is finding it equally problematic. We're not Robinson Crusoe. And whether it's in Japan or whether it's, frankly, Ukraine or whether it's um, the countries of Western Europe, Germany, same pressures. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, and Xi Jinping who both of us have spent time with over the years, uh, has embarked upon an extraordinary uh, change in the China that uh, we knew in the past. Three fundamental changes. He's pushed the politics of the country very much to the left, by which I mean an authoritarian left. That is, whatever personal freedoms existed, have now been circumscribed, religious freedoms, you've seen what's happening in Xinjiang, um, and a reification, if you like, of the role of the party in the state. It's become an authoritarian state, not just in name, but in reality. Secondly, in the economy, we follow this closely, the centre of gravity in Chinese economics has moved to the left big time. State-owned enterprises up, private enterprise down. Uh, and you can give 10 examples in economic policy in the last several years where that's changed. And thirdly, the third big change under Xi Jinping is he's pushed nationalism to the right um, and become much more assertive in China's national foreign policy. It doesn't matter whether you're in the Republic of Korea uh, or in Japan or whether you're, frankly, the Republic of Lithuania, uh, who's mm. been belted around the heads by the Chinese most recently. So that's the underpinning reality. So how do you deal with it is the other half of your question. My argument is um, whoever is the government of Australia after the next election should have some pretty basic and enduring principles here. 
One, you say publicly and privately to the Chinese, we believe in universal human rights. We will never apologize for that. We are a proud liberal democracy and will not change. And that is anchored in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights 1948, to which the Chinese are also, by the way, signatories and ratification states. Number two, we're also allies of the United States. That's not going to change. And the reason for that is not just the legacy issues of the Second World War, but also the force multiplier effects which the alliance with the United States gives the Australian Defence Force uh, in our own region and more broadly. Thirdly, let's maximise our economic relationship with China. Um, to our mutual advantage. Fourthly, work with the Chinese constructively in the institutions of global governance, like the G20, which we helped set up with Australian membership, so that you get the Chinese on the cart with common global, uh, climate change management um, uh, programs uh, and negotiations. And then finally, this is the fifth principle in my view, is when you're going to pick a fight with China, and you need to on a fundamental issue uh, when they come along, uh, then you do so not as Robinson Crusoe. You do so in partnership with a whole bunch of other democracies. Uh, and that, I think, is the way forward. Those principles should not make life dealing with Xi Jinping's China easier, easy, but it should make it more manageable for us to have a more balanced relationship for the future. But it will be hard. And do you think, Malcolm, it's going to be hard because... Beijing seems to have its eyes set on Taiwan at some point in the future. Do you think there'll be military attempts to integrate? And what should Australia's response then be? Obviously, Mr Keating says we have no vital interest there. Well, I, look, I, I disagree with that. I, I think every... I think the whole region has a vital interest in ensuring that a, uh, a very vibrant liberal democracy is not, you know, invaded and... and uh, you know, taken over by force. Uh, the the there has always been, however, a long policy of what's called strategic ambiguity. The Americans have practiced that. They have provided lots of military aid to Taiwan, uh, but they have never confirmed that they would intervene if there was an attempted invasion. Uh, there has been it's been a little bit of a uh, a word game in this sense. If you go back to when the One China policies were adopted, that's to say when we recognised the People's Republic of China in the early 70s, you know, Nixon in America, Gough Whitlam in Australia, um, the, you had in Taiwan, Taiwan was not a democracy, it was a, essentially a dictatorship. Uh, it was ruled by Chiang Kai-shek still, the Kuomintang. Uh, they believed that China was... Um, uh, Taiwan was part of China... Uh, the capital of China was in Beijing. So did Mao Zedong. The only point on which they disagreed was who should be ruling in the capital in Beijing. Now, what has evolved, of course, you know, in the intervening 50-odd years, is that Taiwanese people have an independent identity as Taiwanese. You know, they don't see themselves as part of China in the way Chiang Kai-shek's generation did. And it is a genuinely flourishing, vibrant, liberal democracy. Uh, but, you know, this is a... Look, you, you can't be an effective in diplomacy unless you bring a little bit of subtlety to it. Now, I don't want to... You know, just speaking of subtlety brings immediately 
Peter Dutton to mind. Uh, but I just, I just make this rather, this I think a very profound uh, bit of anecdata. When I was in the, the Halifax Security Conference in Halifax with Lucy last year in November, Canada, uh, you know, it was full of, you know, more four-star generals, admirals, you know, air marshals than you could poke a stick at. And a number of the Americans said to me, uh, mostly with an eyebrow raised, we note that your defence minister is more forward-leaning on Taiwan than our president. Which then brought to mind something Obama had said to me once, which he said, I'm always struck, Barack Obama said, by how eagerly some of our friends want to commit America's legions to conflict. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it just makes us look stupid. Now, in terms of the politicisation of it, uh, can I just say, I mean, echoing what Mike Burgess and others have said, it is obvious that we should maintain a bipartisan approach wherever we can on matters like this. Absolutely. The, the, the attempt to sort of try to use, ramp up a sort of, you know, a, you know, anti, you know an anti-China sort of China scare uh, and then try to tar your political opponents with no basis in fact of being, you know, Manchurian candidates or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for Albanese to be called a Siberian candidate next. I mean, who knows? Who knows what, what, what will happen? But the truth is, as, you know, for the head of ASIO... Howard called me a Manchurian candidate. Yeah, well, he was, he was, wrong, he was, he was wrong to do that, Kevin. I mean, the fact of the matter is we, you know, I, I think both sides of the aisle are very much uh, thoroughly patriotic. There are no Manchurian candidates uh, or Siberian candidates. But, you know, politicising in such a crass way, this kind of thing actually undermines our national security. I mean, that's why it's not just... You know, if, if a politician stands up and says, you know, you know, you over there, you're a bad guy, you know, you're, you know, hopeless or tell lies or whatever, okay, that's not edifying. But when you start accusing people of disloyalty and start accusing and saying that, you know, oh, that, that the, the threat is such that the other side don't have the character to be able to deal with it with no basis in fact, you undermine confidence in our country and you actually undermine our national security. So I'm really pleased Mike Burgess got onto television and gave the government a dressing down and I hope they listened. Mm. I certainly don't seem to have been listening but we're going to turn over to questions um, from you very shortly so if you'd like to start making your way uh, to the microphone. Um, we haven't had time to touch much on Ukraine, although there will be sessions where that is covered very thoroughly across the week. Um, while people are coming to the microphone, I'm not going to have time to ask you to reflect on failure, so you're spared there. But I did, um, I did want to ask you about regrets in public life. Um, Malcolm, you may want to touch on the peremptory dismissal of the Uluru Statement from the heart, maybe, as one of your regrets, and Kevin, perhaps, on your no asylum seeker who comes by boat will ever be resettled in Australia and what the implications of that have been. Um, or maybe you have something else entirely. Well, uh, well, look, just, I mean, on, on the... I imagine this will not be a popular thing to say here, but, look, I, 
certainly did not dismiss the Uluru Statement of the Heart. It is a, it is really, it is a, it's, 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 it is a eloquent, powerful, passionate piece of poetry. Really, it is, you know, it is a. I mean, anyone who's read it will understand what I mean. The only point that, you know, my view is that I don't support having in the Constitution, entrenched in the Constitution, a requirement, you know, a, to have a national assembly, um, uh, constitutional assembly, that is limited to just, to, you know, to one race or group, in this case, First Australians. But should uh, there be I, I, a significant place for the First oh, Nations? Don't they occupy of, of course, a special place? No, of course and they what's should be. What's wrong with that? Of course, being uh, in the Constitution. No, well, no, no, of course it should be. And I've supported uh, the amendment, you know, the constitutional uh, reconciliation, if you like, and over many years, long before the more recent proposals. But my only point is, I am genuinely a small R Republican. You know, I think the only qualification to be elected to any, you know, sort of constitutional body, whether it's a House of Parliament or an advisory assembly, should be that you are an Australian citizen. So, you know, that's... I really strongly believe in citizenship. But in terms of reconciliation, recognition, you know, I... I mean, again, I don't want to... Would, I don't want to labour the point, but I'm absolutely committed to that and have a long-standing track record to demonstrate uh, that I have been. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I have to say in that. Just briefly on... Um, look, none of us in public life ever get it um, uh, right all the time. I certainly didn't. It's just life. You know, I think it's complete bullshit for national political leaders to stand up and refuse to admit they ever get something wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, we're all human beings. Sure. And um, it's just life. Um, and... I think there's a huge honesty factor to be had in our national engagements mm. when political leaders say, actually, upon reflection, we <clears throat> could or should have done this uh, differently or, or expressed it differently or acted differently. And sometimes, frankly, with the benefit of, you know, um, of uh, 2020 hindsight. Uh, very quickly on uh, Uluru, where I partly disagree with Malcolm on this is simply because of the uni unique nature of our first Australians. I dream of a fully reconciled Australia. Mm. I cannot see us getting there in the absence of treaty, and I cannot see us getting to treaty in the absence of a constitutionally entrenched national voice for Indigenous people. Mm. Mm. And I get the Republican point. Uh, we're all citoyens together. I get it. Uh, but um, the French Republic is not dealing with... Uh, and indigenous people who had been here for 70,000 years before a bunch of crims, including my forebears, got dumped here yeah. uh, 200 years ago. So we have a slightly separate set of national circumstances. And I still think it's within our national grasp and within our wit and intelligence to bring about a reconciled Australia. Mm. It's not just utopianism. And so when indigenous leaders mm. uh, go to Uluru and say, you know, we thought about this, constitutional entrenchment and recognition. Um, and, uh, yep, we're all for taking out the racist clauses in the Constitution. We're all for yeah, constitutionally yeah. recognised in the preamble of the Constitution, first peoples of this nation, finally and formally and fully and legally getting rid of terra nullius, etc. Um, 
But uh, we also want a national assembly, but remember, with advisory powers and not legislative powers. Mm. If it was legislative powers, you begin to enter into a different form of governance arrangements. Mm. But when it's advisory powers on legislation which is of relevance to Indigenous peoples, I've thought about it a lot, but my heart and my head is with the Uluru Statement. Mm. In terms of um, um, the, uh, the really hard question of asylum seekers, what we have um, sought to do, certainly on our side of politics, is whatever we were going to reduce by way of people coming to our shores by boat and as a consequence with people smugglers drowning 20% of the cargo on the way, and that's what happened, to therefore increase the total national allocation of asylum seekers coming to this country through the UN program. So if we're going to take it down in terms of those who would normally come by boat each year, take it up by a corresponding and greater amount, by tens of thousands is what we recommended, yeah. uh, through the UNHCR and through the camps where people are left to languish for literally decades because they've got no country of asylum to go mm. to. That was our policy. The one I introduced, which you quoted before, was a policy of 12 months duration to be reviewed 12 months on. And for those who are still incarcerated today under the policies of this government, not under my government, but under the policy of this government, they should have been released either into this country or third countries eight or nine years ago. OK, so can we go now to question... The first question from the floor. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you, Joe, for your four, four years oh, of dedication to thank this you. festival. It's been wonderful, and thank I know last much. year was very difficult for sorry, you. Thanks. Perfect professional. Thank you. Um, I think both uh, former prime ministers partly addressed uh, my question, which was about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which appeared to many of us to have been summarily dismissed uh, by both parties, frankly. So my question... Uh, frankly, Labor Party is to fully enact yeah. the Uluru well, Statement, just to be very clear about what yeah, is on the I'm record now. Yeah, I'm talking about back then. Um, what I'm asking you as little L leaders in your party today is what are you willing to do, what are you willing to commit to here and now to move the Uluru Statement from the heart forward? Well, well, look, I, I don't support the constitutional entrenchment of a, you know, representative assembly of, composed only of First Nations people. I certainly uh, have got absolutely no objection to that being done outside of the Constitution. Uh, look, I, you know, again, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's, you know, I am a Republican. I do believe the only qualification for uh, constitutional office should be to be an Australian citizen, which, by the way, is why I don't like having a non-Australian citizen being our head of state. I think the bottom line is everyone has a voice. Mm. I have a voice. Mm. Uh, Therese and I, uh, yeah. together, we have the National Apology Foundation for Indigenous Australians. We work with Indigenous groups to this day uh, right across the country mm. to advance Uluru's statement and the whole process of reconciliation. I think... If Albo becomes uh, Prime Minister, on the three elements of the Uluru Statement, constitutional recognition, nationalist, uh, the Indigenous voice and constitutional entrenchment thereof, and treaty, 
he is committed now publicly, formally and comprehensively mm. to proceeding on all three fronts. Yeah. Now, we must make sure that happens. And here is my prediction. If we get behind him as a country, let me say, going into the mm. apology in 08, the whole bunch of people from the Labor Party who said to me, whoa, Kevin, whoa, this is all going to go terribly bad. Whoa, the racist reaction is going to be dreadful. No, the country's not going to come with us. Guess what they did? Mm. People got behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, therefore, I think when we finally cross this hump of the, enacting the Uluru Statement, we'll look back about a year's later and say, geez, that wasn't so hard, was it? Why didn't we do it a decade you, well, before? Kevin, yeah. you, you, Kevin you, may be, you may well be right. I mean, I'm not... I, I, I've just, you know, honestly described yeah. what my, my own view is, but you, you may well be right. And, I mean, there's been a lot of social changes that, uh, you know, legalising uh, same-sex marriage is another, where we were told the mm. world was going to come to end and we'd all be, you know, running off and marrying our pets. Uh, but and, also, uh, I, I amazingly, think... the world did not come to an end. No, and I think and, it was also a case happy. of... Um, <laughs> of the parliament being very much behind uh, the Australian mm. people, where mm. the Australian people yep. were yeah. ahead. Um, next question, please. I'd just like to ask why no one has brought up the concept of a Bill of Rights. So, without a Bill of Rights, the Constitution is basically toilet paper. So, we could... Why Labor and Liberal and, you know, I love you, Kev, and, I'm, you know, Albo and... <laughs> I, so, you're literally one of the only Liberals that I can stand, Malcolm. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. a, a Bill of so Rights? A Bill of Rights. What, like, do, you, what, what? do you think? Do you, well, let, let me I'll answer you very quickly. I, look, I'm not a fan of a US-style Bill of Rights. Uh, let, 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 me, let me... No, no, no. Let, let me explain why. If you have... You can easily have, you know, generally generally worded guarantees. You can say, uh, you know, Parliament shall not abridge any citizen's equal protection of the law. Every citizen shall, you know, have the equal protection of the law. OK, you put that in the Constitution, sounds great. And then a court comes along and says, hey, you've got an affirmative action program that is benefiting, you know, Indigenous Australians or, you know, people with, you know, one social or economic disability or another that's not equal protection of the law. So my only my, my point is that when you have generally worded guarantees of rights, and you see this in the United States, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Look, okay, not okay. Just, just, just let me. Because we are going to have to. If you wind put up. it in the constitution, you can't amend it. Now, the UK does not have a written constitution. So what they can have, and the Victorian government has one like this. You can they have a Bill of Rights that when you get a, a wacky or a, you know, a, un, a, you know, a, a wrong-headed judicial decision, which the judges do err, of course, occasionally, uh, uh, then the parliament correct it. But you whack it in the Australian constitution, believe me, I know this from experience, it's very hard to change. Okay. Well, look, I'm sorry we don't have time for more <coughs> questions, um, but we always knew we were going to run out of time with this one. So, will you join with me, please, and thank our two former Prime Ministers for coming Very along, good. Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. Thank you. Thank you. And they will be signing um, over at the book tent, so please do buy their books. Mm.